Welcome to the Stop Suffering in Silence podcast with your hosts, Denise Walsh and Rachel Timothy. Hey, 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 you guys. Welcome back to Stop Suffering in Silence. My name is Denise Walsh, and I'm here with co-host Rachel Timothy. Uh, and today we're going to chit-chat with you and tell you all about what happened at our most recent travel experience. We have the privilege of traveling around the country and educating on what trafficking looks like, how trauma impacts the body, and the power of the healing journey. And we recently got to go to central Illinois and had a few days of meeting with a couple different groups and had a really great experience. So we wanted to tell you all about it. Um, if you are interested in having us come speak to your church group, to your police, to your um, jails or nurses or pregnancy centers or just moms, right? Anyone, really, then email us at stopsis at protonmail.com. We'd love to connect with you. We are booking 2024 calendar right now. So with that being said, Rachel, why don't we start with the first um, thing we went to? So when mm -hmm. we go to do a speaking engagement, oftentimes we say, well, let's book all of our time <laughs> surrounding yeah. And so we did that. And our first um, event was at like nine or 10 in the morning at a pregnancy center. So why don't we start there? Yeah. Um, and it was, you know, jam packed full of women from several different organizations. I think some were pregnancy centers, some were uh, working with trafficking survivors in a different area, but it was, um, Early in the morning, they came with notepads, and I just basically shared my story with them to help open eyes on, um, to help them maybe see their clients a little bit differently that come in. I think that was the biggest thing, uh, because oftentimes, you know, they have women who come in with the red flags of being trafficked, but sometimes we don't recognize it as red flags. Sometimes we just say, oh, that's their lifestyle, um, instead of really seeing that for the trauma that it is and what they're going through. I think them being able to see me where I am now and hear what I've been through maybe helps them see their clients a little bit differently. Right. Right. Yeah. I mean, oftentimes in the, um, there are several nurses there, right. And when someone goes to the ER or comes in, they are at their rock bottom. And so it can be easy to just dismiss or say, Oh, it's drugs or, Oh, it's, generational or whatever the case may be. But when you see you, somebody who has had a rock bottom and has gone to the ER in that moment, um, but has been on the healing journey for several years, I think for me as a clinician, it reminds me, okay, this is not who that person is. This okay. is their rock bottom moment. And I'm here to support them um, as they walk through it. Yeah, exactly. And it was interesting because we had like like you said, scheduled all throughout the day, but we were stopped at the door um, and just people were picking our brains right and left of, okay, but what do I do in this situation? And, and how do I handle, if I do see a red flag, how do I even get somebody to open up to me about what's going on? How do I become that safe person for them um, to be able to potentially help or just ease their mind for a bit? Mm -hmm. Right. Because the, the nurses at the pregnancy center, they say, see people for their like doctor appointment. And mm -hmm. so there's a questionnaire that says, do you feel safe at home? And are you, you know, I mean, do you have a safer relationship? And there's maybe check marks, 
that people put on. Yeah. But they mentioned that it's not quite the atmosphere to go deep because it's like, we're also checking your blood pressure and we're <laughs> making you touch your toes or whatever happens. And so they wondered, how do we create that safe place or at least give, let them know that we are here when they're ready? Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, you could just see the heart that these people had. And it, you could also see that sometimes they recognize somebody's being hurt even before the actual victim does. You know, sometimes they just rationalize things. And how do you help people even recognize, oh, my goodness, you are being trafficked. Right. Right. Or this domestic violence relationship is yes. not safe. And this not normal. isn't normal. Yes. Because survivors often minimize try because our brain tries to make sense of it. We try to we try to balance it. We try to make sense of it. We're most likely being gaslit in the process. And so survivors will minimize their experience or they'll say, oh, it could be worse and all of these types of things. And an outsider can clearly see, no, 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 no. You should never feel unsafe at home. You should not feel like you're walking on eggshells. Those are all red flags that something's happening and we can support you in that. But they're right. There is no good answer in a, in a situation where it's kind of surface level. But what we recommended to them is to let them know that if and when if you ever need anything more, we're here. And I think that that's that's at least something that they can do. Yeah. The value of being seen and heard and loved on in like a safe area, they may come back to you when they're ready. Um, but if you try in that exact moment to fix everything, get them out and change their whole world, that doesn't feel safe to them either. And so helping the, the nurses and the pregnancy care center see the value in simply being a safe place for them to come. That's huge. Yeah. And a, a place to listen, a place to ask questions because you're right. People don't go, oh my gosh, you're right. I should leave. In the yeah. day. Uh, I didn't usually, <laughs> there needs to be some strengthening within that has had often, even a game plan. I mean, when I was working with clients, we would create a whole game plan, a safety plan for them and, and really create an atmosphere where they knew that they could leave and they could be safe. So you had to have all of that planned out before somebody just left. Um, but that inner strength building is a piece of the process as well. And loving on listening and being a safe environment, being a loving human can really provide a lot. Yeah, agreed. It was, it was a really good experience. I was grateful to get to be there. All right. And so next, we spent time with a church group. We had a big circle before our evening event, and you shared your story. But also, these are people that have read your book, and I think maybe went a little bit deeper and asking more questions and what now, and tell us about the healing journey. And, you know, even, and so it was a, a thriving conversation with some passionate women who number one, want their eyes opened and are asking all the questions, but number two, want to do something about it themselves. Yeah. Yeah. It was so good. Um, yeah. They wanted updates. They wanted, you know, what's been going on in the last, you know, years and since the book's been published and how are you doing and all that sort of stuff, which was really sweet of them to ask. Um, and it, yeah, the conversation just flowed. I think it was 
eye-opening for them to see how the healing journey and some of the people that I've met along the way appeared one way and ended up being different. And I think that kind of opened their eyes to, we still, you know, need to be careful who we're trusting with our survivors. And, you know, that opened up a whole other conversation. So um, it was great. It was wonderful. These women are on fire for this stuff. And I think what was so cool to me too, was to see how the, what they were putting together, this event that they had put together that night was really just kind of like a community event. Like they said, I don't know who's coming. I don't know how many to expect. Well, you know, we've prayed about it. We've put out flyers. We've talked about it online. I guess we'll just see what happens. And uh, it was really cool to start seeing so many people walk through the doors that they themselves didn't even know uh, for the event that night. And uh, people just want to understand. And people have trauma that they need words for as well. And so it started off great with that little small group and then it just expanded to something even more beautiful. Yeah. I felt like that small group was a, a deep conversation. It was. And I think there's, there's some frustration that comes when you hear about safe people who are not safe. You know, mm-hmm. when you hear stories of people that told us they would be helpful, told you they would be helpful and then ended up not being, you can see their defeat in that process. But also, as you said, that mama bear comes out and they go, heck no. Um, if they're these bad guys pretending to be safe people, then we need to be even louder because we are safe people and we are creating community and we are uh, supporting survivors. And all of them are like, we want to be even louder to drown out those weirdos. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And they were like, okay, so who do we trust? And I think the neat part about this group was they were all women of faith. And so, you know, we could always bring it back to, okay, we need to trust the Holy Spirit, trust our gut. Um, really hone in on that when we're interacting with somebody to know, uh, you know, do they have red flags? Do they have a reason for me to step away? Because when you hear these stories, it is easy to get defeated and to forget who's in control. Yeah. And so people started coming to the event. We had, I think, about 150, 200 people there. Mm -hmm. It was a full room, a beautiful venue. And we even had some survivors that we've worked with in the past or currently in our programs there as well. And we got to launch the new survivor book. So when we speak, Chains Break was launched at this event. We had physical copies. Hold on. I think I have one here. Physical copies that we sold there and our survivors got to help sell them. Uh, They were standing behind the table. I'm helping to, you know, be a part of the mission. And I think they were really, really proud to be a part of it. Um, it was, they were beaming. Yeah, they were. Yeah. And there was one who, um, she even autographed somebody's book and I got a picture of it. So that was special. You know, they're all authors now and that's a big deal. It's something to be proud of. Um, and I think they, they were, they were beaming just getting to be a part of that community. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so let's talk a bit about that night as well. So we talk, we it, during our presentation, we're always evolving, we're always growing, but we talk a bit about what trafficking looks like and to spot those red flags. But we also talk about childhood sexual trauma, period, right? We talk about any sort of trauma and how trauma is stuck within the body and how if unless we start to heal and we process through it, 
it can impact us for decades and we don't even quite realize why. And so it turns into a powerful conversation of, yes, Rachel's story is eye-opening, but yet there's so many people within the audience that have their own version of, of trauma or CSA or whatever the case may be. And it gives them permission to share too. Yeah. I think one of the pieces of my story, well, I'll say two of the pieces, the grooming aspect uh, really hits home for a lot of people because they're able to recognize for the first time, oh my goodness, it wasn't my fault. I was manipulated by a mastermind. Like they had, and sometimes it's hard to recognize that too. I remember for me, when somebody said it was all grooming, I thought, no, no, no. He loved me. I know he did. Like that can't be. And then I, it was a slow process to finally come to the realization of, oh my goodness, it was all calculated. And it's a hit in the gut for sure. Um, but also at the same time, recognizing it wasn't your fault it is huge. And then I think a little bit on like later on in my story, when I am real about some of the decisions that I made that logically don't make sense, um, but we're all made out of a trauma brain, out of, you know, still not having had the healing that I needed to make a logical decision. Um, I think that hits home for people too. Like, okay, maybe this is why I went off the deep end for a while, why I made the decisions I did, why I've been coping the way I have. Mm -hmm. um, and hopefully it helps them feel seen and heard and validated in that sense too. Yeah. Yeah. I think when you're in the story, right, it's hard to see because it, sometimes it can happen slowly. Oftentimes perpetrators don't just jump in and perpetrate. They are testing boundaries. They are. And so it can be a slow progression. And all of a sudden it's like, what the heck happened? How did we get here? Yeah. And and, and because we minimize things or our brain tries to make sense of things, oh, no, that's not what's going on. Or, oh, no, you know, it it can take that third party, that another person sharing their story where you go, oh, oh, oh mm -hmm. that is that is my story. That is me. And it's not OK. Yes. And recognizing, I think, the the negative coping skills or the unhealthy coping skills, the way we try to handle it on our own. Um, I was listening to a story earlier today and, and the girl was 16, had um, inappropriateness with her dad and people were minimizing it and she was minimizing, it. oh, it could have been worse. And she's like, well, if it wasn't that bad, how come my grades are dropping? I'm suicidal. I'm depressed. I'm sleeping. I'm not functioning. Like it now starts to make sense why that not functioning or that unhealthy coping skill season took place. And I think sometimes people don't quite realize why they're there. Like, I don't know why I feel this way. I don't know why I can't get up out of bed. I don't know why I'm having these thoughts. I don't know. But hearing your story helps them to put the pieces together in their own life. Yeah. And then my hope is, is from there, they'll recognize, okay, maybe counseling is my next step. Or maybe getting a part of our programs is a, is a good next step. Um, because it's one thing to recognize it, but then you, it's also recognizing, okay, there needs to be some healing towards yes. the truth. Um, but then I also find that there's people in the crowd whose family members have been abused in some way, shape or form. Um, and I think it's powerful for people to hear maybe how my experience has been with my family and some of that and um, the impact that a family's response can have on a survivor. So my hope is as well that it gives more compassion 
for people, for survivors. Yeah, I think this really could be a whole nother conversation. So if you're interested in hearing like how a healthy family responds to abuse allegations, put yes in the comments. Like let <laughs> us know you're interested in that because you know, we were having lots of conversations around this with our survivors. And the question is, is do these parents think they're handling it well? Or do they know that they're re-traumatizing their child by not believing, by not setting boundaries, by just saying, oh, you for should forgive, by minimizing the abuse? Like, do they realize that they're compounding when mm -hmm. they're not taking it seriously and not supporting um, the child or, or adult even to have a safe place? So you say this a lot in your, in your story, you can't heal if you're not safe. And if the perpetrator is still in your life, you most likely are not feeling safe, especially if healing hasn't happened yet. And so for families just to say, oh, that was a long time ago or, oh, whatever, and minimizing the experience, you're not creating a safe place for the survivor to start healing. Yeah. And, and safety could be emotional as much as physical, too. And so when you begin to support the abuser, you then become unsafe. Yeah. Right. And so it could even be, we don't see the perpetrator anymore, but I know you still believe them or you are still um, siding with them or I don't know, what would, what would a, what would a parent do or a family member do? How could they help a survivor feel emotionally safe in this type of situation? Um, I, I often feel like they parents feel like they have to take sides like and that's really not what this is. The The truth is not this side or that side. The truth is the truth and calling it out for what it is, is actually going to be better for the perpetrator. Whenever we sugarcoat it and act like, oh, you know, we're going to give you grace and we're going. Grace is actually uh, pointing out the truth. And moving away from like repenting from what we did, like that's providing the grace. Now, if we're um, enabling the abuser, you're doing the abuser harm, in fact, especially the, the victim, like that's causing harm on them, no doubt. But I think parents feel like, well, I need to choose one child or the other. What's best for both is the truth. Amen. Well, and you're right. I think the reality is, is if abuse has happened, it's probably going to happen again unless something changes and unless authorities get involved, unless boundaries are put in place, unless like abusers typically don't just have one victim. And so whether it's a cousin, um, a family member, a friend, somebody in the church, whatever it is, just keeping it within the family or keeping it within the church or keeping it within these small and not allowing authorities to get involved or appropriate consequences to take place. the victim is still living a life knowing they could show up at any moment. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Now we had a survivor and hopefully we'll get them on at some point. Um, but we had somebody we've been communicating with where they did press charges. The family found out what happened. It was a cousin at any, any family event. The cousin um, was a much older cousin, but an older cousin. Yes, it was. <clears throat> so the parents found out finally after a decade of unhealthy coping skills and try, you know, the, the, the survivor trying to figure it out on her own. Mm -hmm. Finally, the truth comes out and immediately the parents took action 
and they did a criminal suit against the cousin and the cousin just this past month was sentenced to what was it? 25 years, Twenty-five years. Yeah. Without option of parole, I think. Um, and I think what was like, yes, the parents took action in supporting their daughter. It was the daughter's choice. Cause she was over 18 at that point. It was her choice to press charges. Um, but the parents wanted to validate her feelings and validate like the fact that she wants, she needed justice. And I mean, they just, they were there. They heard her, they believed her and they were there. And she still, you know, probably has unhealthy coping skills. She's still angry. Uh, she still hurts and loving somebody who's angry and who's hurting is hard, but they see the value in her and they see the value in what she's doing. And they were right there. And, uh, it's been a very beautiful thing from a distance to get to communicate with them and encourage them and, and them us. Yeah. So I have to imagine that hearing your story and hearing, I mean, we're, we're talking about the suck. We're talking about the impact of trauma. And, but we're also talking about the fact that trauma isn't a death sentence and that Mm -hmm. healing is possible. I I have to share this piece because this was a new one for me. You know, I don't know how many times I've spoken um, and shared my story a lot. But when I think back to central Illinois, whenever I was first sharing my story and I was literally curled up with my knees to my chest, shaking, trembling, sweating, (laughs) you know, dissociating at times, all the things. It was a hot mess. But I was getting my story out there to this last time I'm in central Illinois. And I could feel the comfort of God and the peace of God so heavily. Um, Typically before I speak, I will go find a place by myself and I will pray and try to get kind of zeroed in on God and kind of have him fill me up real quick before I I pop on stage to share the hard stuff. And I I found myself a janitor's closet (laughs) And I went in there and I was like, started to pray. And I was like, oh my goodness, I'm good. Like, God, I'm good. Let's go back out there and visit with people to the point where I got like, I got the giggles before I went out on stage. Like that never happens, but I was so enjoying my time with these people and the the passion that they had for being there and what they wanted to learn. Now, let me just tell you, having the giggles and getting up and sharing my story does not go together. Um, and I eventually was able to kind of get it together and focus. But I was just amazed at how God has been doing a work in me throughout these years of sharing my story. The difference is insane. And they could tell. I mean, uh, we, I, afterwards, I said, how many of you have heard Rachel speak before? And can you see the growth and shifts in her strength, in her inner strength as she continues to share and grow? And people came up afterwards and they were like, Heck yeah, we see a difference even from the last time, which was just a handful of months ago. So it's powerful for them to see the healing journey at work, you know? And I think that hopefully that's encouraging to anybody in the audience who is feeling at rock bottom or feeling like they're stuck in this negative cycle and they don't quite know how to get out of it. Counseling, therapy, joining a group like ours, there's a lot of ways that you can be kind of walked through that dark tunnel. And there is another side. Yeah. Amen to that. But that's not where it stops. So (laughs) we got to wake up the next morning and attend a brothel ministry that the ladies started within the last year. 
because one of the things that we've learned as I've gone to central Illinois with you and, and we talked about this after our last event was that there are these spas that are in strip malls that are basically like Asian spas. They're what they're called. Usually they'll have a name like spa (laughs) or something like two words, you know, but you can tell it's kind of an Asian space. And these ladies are brought over to live in this spa and perform sexual acts to the men who book them. Mm -hmm. And when we were there, Last time we were um, next to a spa, happened to be at a safe house, the safe house, uh, like main building, not the house itself, but like the office building next to um, one of these spas. And a man came in and it's one thing to hear about it happening. It's another thing to see it happening, knowing what's about to happen. Mm -hmm. And it was shocking to me. I mean, I know you saw my face and how ruffled my feathers and the fact that I can't believe this is happening. I can't believe that nothing can be done about it. I can't, you know, all these things. So these ladies felt that same sort of holy discontent and said, this is not happening in our town. And what can we do? And so they found what, nine, eight or nine. There's nine in that town, nine of these spa brothels in their area. And Mm -hmm. they started a ministry and we got to partner with them uh, this this past weekend. So tell us a little bit about how that went. went. Oh my goodness, guys. So we're sitting down for breakfast before all of this. And I flat out said to everybody, if I come in contact with a perpetrator, like a John or um, a trafficker, I will punch him in the face. Like I was having a hard time thinking about going in these places, knowing what these girls were going through, knowing from my own experiences, what they're going through and trying to wrap my head around, how am I going to leave them there? How am I going to turn around and walk away? And I was having a hard time. Well, and I was wondering too, how triggering it would be for you to Mm -hmm. see. And, and again, we didn't necessarily go in, we were like in the lobby, but still you can see rooms with beds in them. Like you can see the fact that this is not a spa you can see the men. I mean, it's not relaxing. It's not cozy. It's not beautiful. It's like super dungy, super uh, kind of gross looking. And there's a menu. Mm-hmm. And so I took pictures of the menu because, again, this is shocking to me. And a couple of things that stood out on this menu of services is something called four hands. Just let that sink in. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, and then it's something called like showers included or free or, you know, things like that. And so I wondered how triggering seeing all of even that atmosphere would be for you. Mm-hmm. So I we, wondered, were, we were a bit nervous. We weren't quite sure how. It would yeah. And it's funny because like the women who are part of this ministry, like they talk about the fear, especially that first time of going in, you don't know what to expect. And they all felt a sense of fear. And then as they did it, they realized you know, it's okay. You don't need to feel fear. And I think they thought I was feeling a fear. There was no fear. Like it wasn't like, oh, I'm scared. It was more emotionally. How am I going to handle this? Um, Because it hits so close to home. And uh, I was amazed, absolutely just blown away at how the Holy Spirit worked um, 
from the very first brothel that we went into, um, I got to go in four and through all of them, um, the strength that I felt that was not my own. Um, you know, I was grateful that there were there were things that, for example, I, I don't know if this is appropriate to say or not, but it didn't have the smell that I thought it would that I kind of remember from some of those things. So I was grateful for that because um, I think that maybe would have been triggering. But I think, um, you know, there's a doorbell that you usually have to ring in order to get into these brothels. And that's abnormal for what should be a normal spa. You shouldn't have to ring a doorbell. Um, the women were not dressed appropriately. They were very skimpy outfits usually. Um, and, you know, one of the barriers that we had was they didn't speak our, our language. And so uh, not knowing how it would go, especially with that language barrier, um, but God showed up. He showed up big time. Um, the first one that I went into, there was one lady and uh, rang the doorbell and she opened the door and she was wearing a very short red dress, low cut, big smile on her face. Um, and her name was Joanne. And uh, I tried talking with her. her. Her English wasn't that bad. Um, she could somewhat understand what I was saying. She had oil all over her hands. So I'm really not sure what all she had been was doing behind. Um, but I asked if I could pray for her. And uh, I gave her a hug. And it, guys, I can't even tell you like the physical difference. I was giving her a hug and it was kind of like, oh, okay, you know, nervous. And I started to pray. And I started to, to pray about Jesus. And her body almost went limp, like just breathed for like felt you could just feel it felt safe all of a sudden and relaxed. And it was incredible. Like, and that was it that, you know, we, we had a prayer, we had, you know, um, very short conversation. We gave her a gift and we walked out, but that physical change in her just simply from that prayer was huge. Yeah. And so what we're doing when we go into these brothels is what we can do. The only thing we really can do, which is love on the girls. Yeah. So they bring, we bring a present, a gift, um, ask if we can pray with them, give them a hug. We use Google Translate on our phones to try to, you know, get the, most of them are Chinese or speaking Mandarin. And so we try to communicate in that way. And the conversation is five minutes less, maybe. So we're not there to you know, take them away. We're not there. We're just there to love on them with the goal of building that inner strength. Yeah. Now let's talk about the second one. Cause that's the one that I got to go in with you, which I'm so grateful for because I took a ton of pictures sneakily <laughs> and we got some good ones. So check out our social media to see some of the powerful pictures that we got um, as you gave moon um, a big hug, but she, she was pretty special. Yeah. So, uh, moon was the first one that we met and at the door and, um, asked if, if I could pray with her and she fell apart, like just bald as I prayed. Um, and she again, understand, understood decent English enough. Um, and, uh, she held like held tight onto me as I prayed, um, with an intensity and, and, uh, after we prayed and she cried and all of that, like then I said, is there anybody else? And I was kind of looking back in the room and she said, she pulled out another lady and her name was Maya. 
And uh, guys, Maya was 66 and, and Moon was 63. Like, that was shocking to me. Yeah. I expected these girls to be in their 20s, if not yes. teenagers, you know, and and you just wonder how long they've been doing this. Right. And and so I asked questions like, hey, we're there. Why not? Um, I said, you know, what brought you guys here? And they said work. And um, from w- the way that Maya kind of explained it, she said she had known uh, Moon for a while. And it it almost sounded like Moon maybe was what they, the traffickers used to to convince Maya to come along as well, which they do that. Um, and that's so hard on these victims because Moon's a victim too, but yet she has to recruit friends to come along. Um, but I asked them, you know, where they moved from. And two years ago, they came from Germany. Guys, they, these women are not the descent of Germany. Um, so whatever had brought them there was probably similar work. Um but it was very, it was eye-opening uh, to, to hear a bit of their story. One of them has a daughter um, who is with a guy on drugs that, I mean, just awful situation. And you wonder, you know, is she out being trafficked as well? Yeah. yeah. It was, I was shocked to see, because they don't look 60s either. You know? No. <laughs> I was surprised to hear their age. Mm-hmm. But that was shocking. And then the other thing I realized going into these brothels is that they're not chained up with a bodyguard by the front door, which means physically they could really leave at Mm -hmm. any time. They could physically walk out the door and never come back. Mm -hmm. But the reality is, is they don't know the language. They don't have any place to go. And emotionally they are gaslit, brainwashed, and groomed to think that this is their only option and threatened. Yeah, exactly. Like it's, have you ever heard, um, I'm sure you guys have seen it, but it's this picture of a big, huge elephant with a thin string around his ankle, the Mm -hmm. elephant's ankle. And it's like, the elephant doesn't know how powerful he is. He feel, and what happens is when the elephant is small, there's a chain and then as the elephant gets bigger, they don't need that chain anymore. It can be just a little rope because just the feeling of something on their foot makes them be like, oh, I can't move. Yeah. And it seem, it's that's what it feels like with these girls. Like they've been so conditioned and threatened and probably hurt in the past where mm-hmm. emotionally they're in jail. They're, they're a prisoner. Yeah. Like people, you know, and that, that is interesting. Um, one of the conversations that was had with me after I spoke at the event the night before going back just for a second was, um, somebody said, Oh, I don't believe that Rachel could have left at any point. You don't understand the trauma bond and hold. And I mean, it doesn't feel like a choice. It may look like a choice from the outside. It may look like these women could just walk out that door, like no big deal, but to them, there is no choice. And it is powerful to see that. I think another thing that's interesting is there's really, there's no danger in it for us to go up to these women and to love on them because these traffickers, they, they don't see us as a threat one bit. Well, I imagined like, you know, again, I'm learning all this too, you guys. (laughs) (laughs) I imagined that like the handler would be living there and, um, would be the bodyguard and that these girls would be, you know, used to, but that wasn't it at all. 
these girls often live there alone. Mm-hmm. And, you know, maybe whoever owns it comes in every once in a while. So for us to go and just love on these girls, there was nobody scary there. Mm-mm. There was nobody. I mean, there are cameras and things, I'm sure. Uh, but there was nobody scary at the brothel because they've trained these girls well enough to just stay there on their own. Yeah. And it, it was powerful for me because, you know, like I had been saying, I don't know how I'm going to leave these girls there. I, I just it it's gut wrenching to know as soon as I walk out that door, I know what they're going to experience. Um, and I had a granny in the car and she was praying. And and so every time I would go into one of these brothels, I would then come back to the to my car and I would kind of share with her a bit of of what happened. And she would remind me whether or not these girls leave these brothels, get rescued, get the help they need here on earth. We are sharing them an eternal safety of, of Jesus, that whether or not they find it here on earth and get to that point here on earth, we're at least making it to where eternally they're going to be safe forever um, because they're knowing about Jesus through our, through us being hands and feet. And that was a really precious reminder for me. Like I can't, I can't save anybody. I can't, but God can. And simply planting that seed, he can do wonders with it that, you know, we have no idea. Yeah. And we, we share this story quite a bit, but right there is the, the, the study from Hurricane Katrina where the people who saved themselves had less PTSD than the people who were rescued. And so there's just this power in the survivor saying, no, not anymore. And walking out on her own, Mm -hmm. uh, that gives her that inner strength that doesn't happen if we were to just swoop in and take her out against her will. And that's, I mean, we know the statistics are that those who are living in the life, right. If they, they go back several Mm -hmm. times because it takes a while to build that inner strength and to see that you're worth more. And so they're on their own journey and hopefully we can be a piece of that strength being built and the Holy spirit sparked within. Yeah. And I think helping them see that outside of this brothel, there's people who are safe and there is people who do care about them that aren't going to expect anything in return from them. Well, and we gave them a number, a place Mm -hmm. of like, if you do want help, call this and Moon clutched it. Mm -hmm. And I think that's part of like how, where are they going to go? They don't know the language. They don't have a place to stay. They don't, I mean, what would they really do? So having those outside references could be a bridge to say there are options. outside of here. Now in the next one, you, um, you had a chance to, uh, I don't even know how to put it. You had a chance to come face to face with a potential predator and you did not punch him in the face. I didn't. That's what I mean. It, the Holy spirit was, (laughs) ah, so yeah, we pull up to this place and sitting right outside the spa is a huge van with blacked out windows. Um, quite potentially had been uh, transporting these women that, I mean, that's where my first thought went to. Um, So we go inside and uh, a couple different women come and visit with us. They were harder to visit with. Their language was like their English was not very good at all. We were using Google translate and it's just choppy. It's just hard. Um, But we, I mean, we tried And then out walks a guy from one of these rooms. And I had just got done praying with the girls. And I said, can I pray for you? And I looked at this guy and he said, no, 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 thank you. I don't, I don't need that. And I said, no, seriously, 
I would really like to pray for you. Guys, this was not my words. Let me just tell you. Um, and he said no. And he walked out the door and I followed him. And I said again, can I please pray with you? And again, he said no. And he got, I, I see them, I see him then walking into his van, opening the door and getting in his van. And so I stopped right in front of that van and I closed my eyes and I just began to pray out loud for his soul. And in the process of praying for his soul and for his eyes to be opened to the evil that's going on inside this spa, um, God began to soften my heart to the fact that this guy's soul needs rescued too. And, you know, that was not originally my thought, but my heart was definitely softened. And then I was shocked when I opened my eyes and he was kind of nose to nose with me. Like he was very like right in front of me. And I didn't know he didn't get in his van. So when I opened my eyes and saw him standing right in front of me, I was a bit shocked. And immediately he said, thank you and amen. And I was like, oh. <laughs> um, but he went on to try to justify and explain himself. He said, you know, I travel a lot for work and I have a bad back and I was just stopping in here to, to get my back rubbed. He's like, I know what they do in there. I know what goes on inside. Um, he said, but that's not what I was doing. And I said, okay then go somewhere else to get a back rub next time and help me stop what's going on inside because it's not right. What's happening to these girls. No, I agree. I totally agree with you. And, and I just want you to know, like I have a Bible in my van um, and I take it with me everywhere I go. And my dad's actually a pastor. and That's great. That's wonderful. Then help me stop what's going on inside. Yeah, I agree. I agree. Um, you know, I have no doubt that he was not just in there for a back massage. But man, God showed up. Yeah. We only went, there's a handful. I mean, I think there's three vans of us. So maybe 10 of us, 12 maybe, um, who were going to all the brothels. But we would only have three go in at a time because obviously that would be overwhelming. So I only went in on a, to a few. You went in as many as you could. Uh, and so I was sitting in the van waiting. And all of a sudden we hear, Rachel's praying for a man. We were like, What? <laughs> so we ran out and took some pictures and just kind of made sure number one, that you were safe. And number two, uh, like what the heck was happening? Because we noticed that the van is from a different state, that it's tinted out windows, that potentially the van itself could be transporting girls and you just never know. So, um, you know, it was a, a powerful experience to witness. I'm sure more powerful even to be a part of yourself. It was powerful to see God move in that moment and kind of almost, I almost felt like a spectator, really. It, it was insane. We talk about this a lot too, is there's a lot of services for the survivors as there should be because trauma mm -hmm. is trauma is trauma and healing needs to be, to be had. Safety needs to be created. But we also need to figure out what the heck to do with the desire for, um, for this type of thing. And so during our car conversation, I was saying things like, well, if men are in a healthy relationship, like, is that helpful? Yeah. Like, is it the broken families? That's the problem. Is it these, you know, what, what can we really do? Is it, if the, do we need healthier families? Like, would that help these men not need X, Y, or Z? And one of the ladies was like, 
nope, that's not it. <laughs> and it was really, I mean, we, you guys, you need to hang out with us because we just have really good conversations. And, um, come, come and hang out with us as we go to brothels because we solve the world's problems. But that, that was, no, that was not the answer. The answer, yeah, yes, we always need healthier families. Yes, we want healthy marriages. Like as a therapist, I will always go back to the family is the root of the community. And if we have healthy families, we have healthier communities, but there's also something called sex addiction. And there's also things that, that men and potentially and women, whoever have, they have issues, they have problems. It's a, a mental health disorder. It's an addiction. It's a, something's not right. Their brain is rewired and you could have a great, healthy family, a seemingly thriving relationship. You could be, and still have this need or desire uh, that is not safe or healthy. And so, so then the, the conversation goes into addiction and how do we help these, these addicts who, um, in the midst of their addiction are hurting not only themselves, their families, but also others. Exactly. I mean, you see the quote all the time, end the demand and we'll end trafficking. And, you know, I, what porn has done to minds has uh, really messed things up for our for families, but also then for these victims. And so, absolutely, I think the conversations um, around like guys, we are constantly trying to figure how do we change the world, how do we get these things fixed, um, and one person at a time, one brothel at a time, one survivor at a time. God's God's working. Absolutely. So we've got more coming. We've got some other things brewing behind the scenes on how you can take action as well. I was just going to say uh, the last one that I went in, I kind of wanted to share this because it was very difficult for me too. And I think it can, is a little bit of a conversation. Um, the last one that I went in, again, the language was a bit of a barrier. Um, and when I said to the girl, can I pray for you? She thought I said, can I pay for you? And she asked me long and that kicked me in the gut. Um, but it, it also helped me realize men are not the only ones who are coming in. It also just goes to show the mindset, um, the worldview, essentially. That's what they hear all the time. Mm -hmm. So the question is. Right. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So I just thought that was uh, another gut wrenching thing. But yeah, um, you can keep going with what you were saying. <laughs> yeah. No, thank you for bringing that up. Um, but yeah, so we, you know, I think we have a holy discontent that we, yes, we want to educate, we want to support, but there's also like this action, like we want to do something. And so we're brewing some things behind the scenes. Uh, so stay tuned, be sure to like, and subscribe, comment, all the things, be connected to our social media, Instagram, Facebook, uh, TikTok, right, Rachel, are we on TikTok as well? Um, and stay we tuned are on to TikTok, yeah. Stay, stay tuned as to what is brewing. So maybe you can be a part of some of the action we're taking as well. All right. Well, thank you guys so much for listening and being a part of helping us get the word out about trauma 
trafficking, the healing journey. Um, and if there's a brothel in your town, uh, stay tuned because we'll give you some insights as to what you can do uh, to love on the ladies and do at least, you know, what you can do, which is show them Jesus's love and spark the Holy Spirit within them. Yeah. Amen. This is just the beginning. Um, so, all right, you guys, thanks for hanging out with us. Have an amazing afternoon and we will see you next week. Thank you so much for listening to this powerful episode of Stop Suffering in Silence. If you are interested in booking Rachel to speak at your school, your church, or on your podcast, then please email openblindeyes at protonmail.com. If you are interested in sponsoring a survivor on their healing journey and would like to donate to Stop Sis, then please check out the link in the description box or show notes below, or you can email stopsis at protonmail.com. And finally, if you are currently suffering in silence or you know somebody who is, whether they're dealing with a current trauma or one from the past, then we will always recommend that you reach out to your local resources and find a counselor that you can trust because nobody is meant to suffer alone. Have an amazing week and thank you for being here.